Welcome back to the FDIC podcast, a place where we talk about all kinds of things having to do with our banks and your money. I'm Sultan Megji, the FDIC's Chief Innovation Officer, and today is very special for me. We're launching a new series of the FDIC podcast that examines the particular issues related to technological innovation in banking. In our first episode, FDIC Chairman Yelena McWilliams and I discussed the main themes we're moving full steam ahead on. That as we promote and encourage innovation, as we build the banking system of the future, we make sure that it's open and inclusive and that it is resilient. And today we're focusing on resilience, how we protect our financial system from malicious threats so that we can all sleep at night knowing our money is safe and sound. I am so excited to welcome a special guest to the FDIC podcast, my friend and former Homeland Security Secretary, Michael Chertoff. Secretary Chertoff has spent most of his life in public service, from being a former federal prosecutor who took on organized crime, to being a circuit court judge who later served on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, and he was the second secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Secretary Chertoff, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. So let's just start off with something very basic. What does resilience mean to you? Well, sometimes I tell people resilience is the ability to take a punch and get back up on your feet. But to be a little bit more specific, I think there are really three elements to what I consider resiliency. One is defense in depth, recognizing that when you're facing a threat or a risk, having a single point of defense is really putting all your eggs in one basket. You want to have multiple ways of defending yourself uh, because you recognize that one level may fail and you want to have a backup level. Along with that, I'd say resilience involves backup planning. What do you do if things go dark, if there is a glitch, if there is some damage to the system? How do you get back up again? That may involve having an alternative pathway. It may involve having an alternative set of records, and we can talk a little bit about that later. Um, But it means not, again, having all your supply chain be with a single point of failure. And finally, what's your recovery plan? Once the immediate crisis passes, How do you return to the status before the event happened? All of those, to my mind, are what are resumed in the word resilience. When we talk about resilience in the banking system, a lot of our conversations are around software, and it's around process, and it's around people, right? And so I hear everything you just said, and and it's very easy to only think about it as a technology problem, but it's also a human problem. It's a process problem. As you've studied resilience and and really shown a light on this over the last few years, where are the the first places that you've seen people be successful approaching a discussion around resilience that they haven't necessarily approached previously? Well, I think, you know, when I first started out looking at cybersecurity issues, it it was treated as a perimeter issue, like the Maginot Line. We've got to have a very strong set of gates to prevent people from coming in around the perimeter, and then we're done. That's actually almost the least significant thing. An interesting way to look at it is the way we look at health and what we're going through now with the virus. If you went to your doctor and said, doctor, what can you give me so I'll never get sick? He'd laugh you out of his office. Resilience in the healthcare area means the ability to lose some uh, uh, infections, but also to be able to recover quickly, uh, to be able to have palliative care, that allows you to function even if you are somewhat ill, the ability to intervene if necessary, even to remove something that's dangerous. That's what we've begun to move to in the internet. We're looking now at layered defenses. Uh, How do we, for example, segment the network so that once you're in, if I can use the analogy, the infection doesn't go all over the place? 
how do you use identity to manage who gets to do what and who has the power to do something? How do you have an alternative set of records if your records somehow become inaccessible? All of these are now elements in what I consider to be a strategy of defense and resilience, which increasingly we are migrating toward. This almost sounds like you're talking about an immune system. It is. And as you know, with your health, um, it's not always the case that when you get a single vaccination or a single pill, you're done for life. You have to keep boosting it. And you also have to have the ability in the case that something in fact does get through the immunity to be able to reduce the effect and to recover. Well, I mean, this is exactly what we're dealing with with the COVID vaccines, right? I mean, so, you know, the, the current generation of them don't make it impossible for you to get it, but it allows you to mitigate the effects of it, you know? And at some point here in the future, there will be full immunizations, one would assume, that would then make it harder to get in. But getting back and to- And let me say, that's exactly right. And, and the, one of the key lessons in both cases, cyber attacks and health, is that you need to understand risk Risk is not a zero-sum proposition. I want no risk ever. Even if you stayed home and never left your bedroom, there'd be some risk that a roof could fall in. What you have to do is reduce the risk to a level that is tolerable and then have ways to mitigate the effects so that, again, you can be resilient. And that's really the key to resilience. It's so interesting to hear you talk about no longer thinking about the Maginot line, you know, uh, because you know we're we're just at this moment where we're starting to talk about zero trust networks, which is you know kind of the logical next step to go from the the moat version of perimeter defense, you know, with VPNs and things like that that we've had for fifteen years, to now think about entire environments that are zero trust environments, right? And as as we go into this next stage, so many banks, and so let's try to make this real for for so many of our listeners, you know, so many banks are using really old technology. Right. These are decades old systems in some cases, and they're, you know, they're using more modern fintechs to expose some of what they do. As you're taking the very old and combining it with the very new, the opportunity for risk is, is not zero, obviously. Oh, correct. Right. Yeah. And so one of the things that I think a lot of our banks struggle with is figuring out how to take the discussion of risk that you and I are just having here and making it real in terms of how they think about initial next steps. You've got a tremendous visibility across not just this market, but other markets. Are there some things that you're noticing that people are doing that are good first steps to try to approach resilience at, at an, almost an organizational level? Yeah. Well, one thing we're, you know, we're, and we're advising clients on is to look at your business model, look at what your key assets are, and look at who the threat actors are, because not every entity is subject to the same threats, and then tailor your emphasis on defense to those threats that are the most serious in consequence and most likely to happen. And that could be, in the case of a bank, it could be obviously theft of money and uh, theft of other valuable assets. But it can also be, for example, interfering with the availability of the banking system by shutting it down. And some years back, I think in Britain, uh, not because of an attack, because just to mess up with the software, one of the banks went offline for a while, and that becomes very, very debilitating. You also want to look at the integrity of the data. More than many businesses and many industries, banking is about information. Uh, you know, a nuclear power plant, either the power's on or it's off, or the radiation is spilling out or it's not. 
But banking only works if there's information that is accessible and reliable. And so, again, the danger of corruption of data or ransomware, which shuts down access to data, is very, very salient to the banking industry. So backup plans, alternative sets of records, um, alternative ways of recording transactions are some of the steps bankers can be thinking about as kind of initial giant steps to security. You know, we have about 5,000 banks in this country, right, of a variety of different uh, scales, of a variety of different technical capabilities, and probably 20,000 different supporting organizations, whether it's fintechs or other technology vendors. And so looking at that landscape, even though we don't directly regulate a big percentage of that, we wanted to shine a light on this and begin to, to help this community figure out how to address these kinds of issues. We've talked about threat landscape a little bit, but as you think about you know, putting yourself in the shoes of a banker for a few minutes, what are some of the threats? What are some of the things that are top of mind for you? Well, we've seen, of course, uh, the theft of money. And, you know, as Willie Sutton said, you know, I rob banks because that's where the money is. But what has happened with cyber attacks is the scale of the robbery has been much greater. And nation states have been involved. So North Korea, for example, for a long time has run a series of um, efforts to basically withdraw millions and millions of dollars from ATMs by corrupting the systems inside the ATMs or the cards and thereby allowing limitless withdrawal. So figuring out whether there's a vulnerability there and how you might mitigate it Maybe it's dual authentication, maybe it's lower withdrawal limits, maybe it's some kind of a behavioral analytic that tells you there's an odd pattern of, of withdrawals. But that issue of withdrawing a lot of money is one element. Another thing the North Koreans did was use bank transfers, interbank transfers as a way of stealing money. So you know, a couple of years ago, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York received instructions from the Bank of Bangladesh to send over a billion dollars to overseas banks. And about 80 million were sent before somebody noticed some oddities in the language of the instructions and said, time out, this looks funny, and they called a halt. But again, because the banking system is global and the need to move money efficiently is a very high priority, uh, that again is an issue you've got to think about. Um, availability, I'll give you another example. We did an exercise I did with a bank board of directors a couple of years ago, and, and this is where planning becomes important. And the scenario was that the vendor for the bank cards um, has been corrupted by a cyber attack. And we now don't know if the banking cards and the credentials are actually real. What do we do? Do we shut down until we can verify things, or is there an alternative? So as we worked through it, I said, look, you must have some clients that have a regular pattern of withdrawal and transactions every week or every month, like payroll. On those, you probably don't need to work very hard to verify identity because you've got an existing pattern of behavior that validates as long as it continues. But if there's a singular transaction, that may be where you want to say, time out, we've got to look at this. So this was not a technology solution. It was looking at behavioral data that you've collected 
and analyzing how that can be used to mitigate the risk. Well, this is a great area of focus because there's a lot of discussions in the banking sector right now about artificial intelligence. And, you know, there have been some house hearings here recently, and there's going to be more of that. And it there's this notion that artificial intelligence is an entire category and that we need to think about AI and, and any sort of algorithmic automation as one single bucket. And, you know, I think I, I would encourage people to take a more nuanced approach and say, what are you actually doing with it, right? You know, AI that's used to make credit decisions, for example, is one thing. And using AI, as you've just described, which we already use in market for things like Bank Secrecy Act and any money laundering and other fraudulent activities, is, is becoming fairly commonplace very quickly, right? There are a lot of organizations out there that still do all of this by hand. Yeah. You know, they they have people sitting at computers and they say a transaction pop up and they say, OK, I'm going to research that for 20 minutes and decide if this is you know kosher or not. Right. I would be I'd be very curious to hear what you think about in working with bank boards, for example, how you get the these organizations and the people to kind of step up and say, yeah, this is something we need to be putting front and center. Well, I think, you know, a lot of the challenge you have with boards, not just banks, but with, you know, all kinds of companies is they have so many problems and solutions that are being thrown at them that they become overwhelmed and they feel like we could bankrupt ourselves just by, you know, bringing all of this online. So how do we decide what's worth doing? And that's why I go back to risk management. If you can explain to a board, here is where your highest risks are, both in terms of threat and consequence. And then you can give them not perfect solutions, but things that can really reduce the risk in an efficient way. You know, I have found that boards <clears throat> gravitate to that. Now, sometimes it may also involve making a decision not to get involved in a certain kind of business or certain kinds of transactions. And banks already are dealing with the need, for example, for artificial intelligence in know your customer. So um, the key is how do you adapt machine learning, artificial intelligence on the security side uh, and in terms of, of risk in general, but also recognizing that the final decision in many cases should be by a person. But what the artificial intelligence can do is reduce the surface area in which you're having to make decisions and tee it up for a quicker answer. How do we get more people to think about resilience, to think about making it part of their career, to think about making it part of their daily lives, not just at the board, but even at the consumer level? Yeah, well, I mean, I, and I think a lot of this is at the consumer level. We need to get people to understand the value of things that are resilient and security focused, but also we need to make it, we need to demystify it because to be honest, I've dealt with a, you know, a fair number of engineers who feel the more complicated they can be, the more you know, authority they have. And what it really does is it causes people to, to withdraw. So, I mean, one of the great examples of an area that we need to do work is passwords. <clears throat> passwords are inherently limited in their utility. The more of them you proliferate, the harder it is to keep them straight. If you have to keep changing them, that becomes difficult. Now we're beginning to move more into facial recognition. If, for example, a, a multi-factor multi authentication with facial recognition, maybe uh, an analytics about the device you're using, as well as some vision of your normal behavior, if those were brought together, it would both make it a lot easier for the consumer, but it might also be even more robust. 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, one one that we hear commonly added to that list is geolocation. Yes. You know, so if my car and my phone are are not within walking distance of each other, and my phone starts doing something extraordinary from a banking perspective, maybe it shouldn't be allowed to do yeah. that, right? So on the human side, it would be impossible to talk about resilience without talking about where we want to go with it. You know, this is you and I've just been having a, a very nice conversation that I hope people found interesting about kind of where we are and how we got here, right? Decades of technical debt, decades of this. I take a step back and think about this at almost a macroeconomic level, right? We're in a, a huge moment of evolution in the banking sector and in our own nation's history. You know, we look at other nation states challenging us from a foreign policy perspective, from an economic perspective. We see uh, independent financial structures like some of the digital assets activity emerging. And then there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of discussion we could have around that, probably better for a different time. And uh, But then we also have to think about where we as a nation want to go. And as someone who's been a public servant for a huge amount of his career, you know, one of the questions that, that, I, that I came into this really wanting to hear you speak about was, how do we create a 21st century where the United States is still the number one, where it's still the leader, where our competitiveness is second to none in a, in a way of kind of looking at what we did in the 20th century and doing it in the 21st century? So how do we how do we do that? Well, I mean, one of the keys to our leadership role in the last you know decades was the financial sector and the fact that we were you know, the dollar currency was the backbone of global finance. That's why the Chinese have worked very hard and not particularly quietly to try to create an alternative financial system, an alternative financial vision, because they feel that as long as we are the dominant financial force, we have leverage. Um, and I think that's going to continue. And that, that will also involve convincing people that the stability of Chinese currency is tantamount to the same as the U.S., it engages as well with issues about trade and where we use tariffs and where we don't use tariffs and, of course, the supply chain and whether we are wholly reliant on China. One thing that we've seen about China in the last few years since she became president, because that really was an inflection point, is the use of economic power for geopolitical ends. You know, for a long time, the U.S. took a very purist view. Commerce is commerce. Business is business. It pursues the profit motive. We don't tell it what to do. You know, our geopolitical strength is the military, uh, our industrial base, etc. That's not the view that the Chinese view of the Russians. And they will use their economic power as a way of not only taking intellectual property, but really basically saying to other countries, you do this or we're going to pull the plug. At the same time, we've begun to do a little bit of that, too, with um, sanctions. And one of the key sanctions tools we've used against the Russians has been to cut off certain people from the financial system. Now, we haven't totally cut Russia off, but that raises a risk, too, because it makes the financial system part of a battlefield. And at some point, you know, there's a concern that if you overdo it, the Russians might say, well, what the heck, we're going to just you know, interfere with the ability of the system to operate. So as with most things, there's a technical element to how we protect our position in the financial system of the world, but there's also a human and strategic element. We want to acknowledge that we have to use sanctions sometimes, but we don't want to overuse it to the point that we wind up actually getting blowback. And I think these are going to be big challenges 
for the next few years. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about, and and I do hear a comparison between Belt and Road, which is the PRC's mechanism by which they use capital to, in essence, buy cooperation, right. especially in, in Africa and other parts of Asia, with our sanctions environment, right? And if you look back to, for example, the 1960s and 70s with organizations like USAID and, and kind of post-Marshall Plan activities, we really did finance a lot of the development of the world, not just the rebuild after World War II, but that kind of big industrial boon in the mid 20th century. And then we followed that on with, you know, the internet boom, right? These were kind of sequential activities, right? I look to the next 50 years and say, you know, sanctions is one thing that we have to be calibrated very carefully on because, you know, the last thing I think we want is, is you know, total economic warfare. That's not good for anybody. But then figuring out what other things we should be doing. And, you know, I, I joke in, in speeches that at some point Elon Musk is going to put a bank on Mars. And so how does that work? How do we make sure that's part of the American banking system and not part of the PRC's banking system, yeah. right? Well, that's, that's a great question. I think that... Um, you know, there are a number of different dimensions to it. One is, of course, just facilitating American investment in the Southern Hemisphere. We're starting to do that a little bit more in Asia and in Africa. And if we can present people in those parts of the world with an alternative way to run technology in which they don't feel that we're, you know, we're going to steal their technology or their, their intellectual property or otherwise use it to leverage them, we will then attract those customers to American enterprises or Western enterprises and not to Chinese. And by the way, this should be collaborative with Europe and other like-minded nations. It's not really just America. Well, I think, I think I mean, it's worth saying that we are, you know, a number of people now are talking about this kind of D10, where it's the kind of 10 largest democracies are, are kind of aligned. I think it would be wonderful if we could all kind of get behind our, each other, not just in terms of, you know, being democracies, but also being free market capitalist economies. I'm, I'm a big believer in that. We're trying to do this now um, by building, for example, coalitions to do investment in critical infrastructure technology like chips, <clears throat> like 5G, where we don't want to simply have Huawei be the default company that does the 5G infrastructure, but we want to work with our European allies and other democracies to have other companies be able to come forward and be competitive. And that means we don't then give the Chinese the leverage that being a sole source has. And one thing the pandemic taught us was that the mentality a lot of businesses had for a long time, which was described as lean, just in time, don't have any you know thing you don't need like in the next 10 minutes, turns out to be a great way not to be resilient. And for example, the auto business now is having a problem because they didn't have any kind of a backup plan with chips. So when chips dried up from China, all of a sudden they're like, what do we do now? We have to shut down. So I think part of this mentality of resilience, of investing in parts of the world where we want to build good relationships, that's a those are positive ways of counteracting geopolitical rivalry as opposed to just punitive things, which are sanctions. Well, it's, I mean, it's difficult for us, I think, to not take a very hard look and see autocratic, highly centralized 
political economic systems, which is basically the definition of, of socialist and communist platforms, right? And then compare it to ours, which is much more federated. And I'd much rather have 15 manufacturing sites for something scattered across three continents than one in one place, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating problem. And I think if I was sitting in, you know, a job like this as a regulator in Brazil or Australia or India, I would see two very different, characteristically different systems. I'd see a highly regulated, highly controlled, highly centralized PRC system backed by the CCP and this kind of um, wild, wild west almost, you know, on the other side. And I think there's an opportunity for us to draw a better picture, a draw a better comparison, and, and in doing so, create more market opportunity for the banks of the United States, which to I, me gets exciting, right? I agree. And I think the key is not to duplicate a, a, an autocratic system. But it's also to recognize we have to be strategic. That simply saying everybody do your own thing doesn't really work when you're dealing with a hyper-competitive global environment. And I, so I think we can be strategic without being coercive or over-regulating. You really understand this better than a lot of other people. So first off, thank you for, for coming sure, today. happy this to do it. Great. But what brings that optimism? It's uh, For those who aren't in the room with us, you know, the secretary has been sitting here kind of smiling the entire time and uh, maybe we'll get some pictures or something, but it's just been, it's there's a clear optimism in your voice. What, what brings you that optimism? Well, you know, first of all, the fact that we're doing this, the fact that you have a resilience uh, focus now at the FDIC, um, and I'm seeing this in other parts of the government as well, and I'm seeing it overseas, I think we've now woken up to the fact that we need to really take a look more holistically at how we run our economy, how we run our, our activities in cyberspace, and where we are geopolitically. And once we start to look at it strategically, we will come up with solutions. They won't be perfect, but we won't be simply conceding the battlefield by default. So that gives me cause for optimism. I also think generally when it comes to ingenuity and technology, the West still has a tremendous leg up over other parts of the world in terms of creativity, in terms of, of uh, energy. But the one thing I would say to come back to the point you made a moment ago is this. Um, I worry about overregulation too. So one of the things when I was at Homeland Security that we used to say is this. We want to be outcome-based. We want to tell the companies that we regulate or we have some say over Here's what you have to be able to do. Exactly how you do it is up to you. And it can fit within your structure and your plan. And we're willing to help you and give you advice, but we're not going to micromanage you. And that, to me, is the right balance. If you tell people, here's what you have to do and, and the capabilities you have to have, um, and most important, if you tell them, you need to have a plan and we need to be able to see the plan, then you give them the ability to figure out within their particular context what is the most efficient way and the most cost-effective way. As long as we take that approach, I'm confident we can catch up on some lost ground. And I don't you know, want to make the Chinese or Russians larger than life. They have big problems of their own too. But um, the key thing is here, we finally have noticed we need to get moving. And that's good that we're doing it through plans like what you're describing. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Mr. Secretary, for joining us today. It's been a, it's been a pleasure to actually sit in the same room as, in, as you for the Hard first to believe, time. Hard yeah. yeah, it's been a while. So thank you, sir. Thank you and good luck.